Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In 2021, the pension assets of U.S. workers stood at $35 trillion and amounted to fully 62% of all global pension assets. For almost half a century, this money has fueled the growth of the asset management sector, the likes of BlackRock, Vanguard, and Fidelity Investments, to name only a few. In a recent article for New Labor Forum and in this conversation with book reviews editor Samir Santi, author Benjamin Braun casts a critical eye on the investment practices of collectively bargained Taft-Hartley pension funds, which have contributed so significantly to the rise of our bloated financial sector. Can labor's capital reverse course and instead provide long-term patient capital to benefit the public good, including urgently needed large-scale renewable energy projects? Listen as Braun tackles this question of enormous political, economic, and environmental consequence. I'm, I'm really, really excited for this discussion today with Ben Braun, um, whose extraordinary essay, Fueling Financialization, the Economic Consequences of Funded Pensions, is in the current issue of New Labor Forum. I urge everyone to read it as soon as they can. Ben is a political scientist at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies, where he works on the politics of central banking and the political economy of asset manager capitalism, a concept we're going to talk about a bit today. He's really, he really is a prolific scholar who seems to crank out path-breaking articles on the change in character of the financial system basically every other week. I mean, I, I really don't know how he does it, but I've learned an enormous amount from him and urge everyone to read everything he publishes, but especially to start with the article we're talking about today, which again is in the current issue of New Labor Forum. Ben, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for being here with us today, all the way from Berlin. All the way from Berlin. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak to you today. I'm well, excited. Really looking forward to it. Well, we've got, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in this extraordinary article. So why don't we start with a couple of definitions? Let's first take the term financialization. We all know, I think everyone in our audience, everyone in the world knows that Wall Street is very powerful and that it influences many different aspects of the economy. But we often speak about it abstractly. You know, for instance, I just use the shorthand Wall Street, which doesn't actually explain much at all. Now, financialization is also a pretty abstract concept, but you use it to describe a very concrete process that's played out over time and which is measurable in various ways. So can you kick us off by unpacking this term financialization? I would say that in the conventional view, financialization is seen as 
related to the exhaustion of the Fordist growth model in the late 1960s and 1970s in the U.S. first and foremost. And that was a time when competition arose for U.S. firms in international trade from Japan and Germany when deindustrialization started in a serious way. And then later in the 1980s, when disinflationary policies, all of these things came together in a way that reduced economic growth and that led to real wage stagnation after decades of real wage growth. So basically a wage-led growth model gave way to something else. The story of financialization here is a story of, is one of demand for credit as a replacement for lost income from labor. And so newly created credit was going to substitute for stagnating wage income and sustain aggregate demand. So there was a, a macroeconomic dimension to this. Unleashing finance in order to fuel the creation of credit or allow the financial sector to create more credit and thereby to allow people to keep consuming, basically. I completely buy this demand for credit story, which is associated especially with the work, um, very important and influential work of Greta Krippner, for example, sociologist. So I, I, I have no objections to that story, but I do think there is also what you could, although the analogy is maybe not perfect, call a supply side story. And a better way to put this is the growth of what I like to call institutional capital pools. So insurers, endowments, university endowments, uh, sovereign wealth funds, but first and foremost, uh, pension funds, especially in, in the US. So what drove the growth of these institutional capital pools? Well, in the, in, in the paper, I discussed very briefly three developments, and these are essentially inequality, the rise of inequality. Rich people want to save more, simply put. Demographic change, people who have longer post-retirement lives want to put aside more money for that period of their lives when they don't no longer have income from employment. And then third, policies that make people want to save more or that force them to save more. And the most important of these policies, of course, is pension privatization. And pension privatization really happened around the world since the 1980s and, and then in the 1990s. But U.S. funded pensions are really the gorilla in the room or in the world there. We're talking about $35 trillion or 62% of global pension assets, which is huge. Now, how do these institutional capital pools drive financialization? Well, this is money that is looking for long-term financial investments. In a way, these are large financial institutions that look for ways of investing large sums of money in a more ideally with a good mix of liquidity and yield. And there is no reason to expect that an economy will always produce financial assets at a scale that's sufficient to meet this demand from institutional capital pools for financial investments. And so the financial sector is going to produce these assets or is going to help produce these assets. And so from this perspective, financialization is the reorganization of the economy to make more areas of production, but also increasingly, and it's very important, of social reproduction amenable to investment by financial investors, by these financial capital pools. So I think this story is complementary to the unleashing credit to sustain demand story. 
Great. That's, I think, a really nice big frame for this discussion. So we've got this sort of argument we've heard in recent years around the demand side, right? And the need to substitute credit for stagnating wages to maintain a standard of living. And here you're offering another dimension to it on what we might call the supply side. What are the, some of the drivers of this? There's a few factors, right? Inequality, which relates to the demand side, demographic change. And then you're focusing here in particular on these institutional capital pools. So we're, let's go over this just a little bit because I, this is this is complicated material, but it's also not, you know, I think we can all get our heads around it. You're talking specifically about funded pensions. You use this term funded pensions. So before we drill deeper into this, why don't we just establish what funded pensions are? You know, most people probably associate pensions with retirement, but there are also other things that come to mind. Maybe, you know, there's union pension plans, there's 401ks, there's IRAs, social security, and so on. So can you just talk a little bit about the landscape of retirement programs and then explain specifically what pension funds are? Yes. So maybe to start with a very basic point that I think is is important to establish in this discussion is that a claim on a retirement income is always a claim on future production in a way. And then there is a question, how does a society organize organize this, that when you don't work, you somehow, someone will pay you an income. And so there are two very basic ways to organize this. And one that is relatively marginal, but still important in the US is a pay-as-you-go system. So this is a system where the young basically pay taxes of some sort or social contributions, and this money gets passed on via some state institutions to the old who are no longer working. So in such a pay-as-you-go system, of which social security is a pay-as-you-go system, there is no financial intermediation. But still, people working today acquire a claim on future production, because when they retire, it's the production of the then young who are in the labor market that sustains their claim on social security or in Germany. This is actually our main, our main pension. The first, what we call the first pillar is a pay-as-you-go system that every, every employed person has a claim on such a retirement income that is to some extent tied to your income while, while you're working. Then the alternative is a funded, is a funded pension system. And all the examples that you mentioned, of course, are ways of organizing a funded pension system. So here too, uh, you acquire a claim on future production, but you acquire this by saving money today, investing that money via some financial vehicles in financial assets, which are, of course, a financial asset is nothing but a claim on future production, whether that's a bond or a share. And so again, ultimately, uh, what your claim on future workers via a pay-as-you-go system or via a share or let's say an index fund in the S&P 500, the value of that claim in 30 years depends on the size of the economy in 30 years, simply put. But these are just two different ways of organizing such a claim. And then within the funded pension system, there are different financial mechanisms ranging from collective schemes, such as state pension funds or, or private sector defined benefit plans to individual plans such as 401ks and IRAs, but also, for example, life insurance. A life insurance has actually arguably globally a, a longer history as a, as a way of saving for old age. It goes back a long time. Pension funds, these giants in the investing world, these are, of course, first and foremost in the U.S. public pension plans, which a good way of comparing these to other financial institutions would be sovereign wealth funds. I don't know, the California used to be the sixth 
or seventh biggest economy in the world, right? And so CalPERS is like the sovereign wealth fund in a way of a very large economy. Many sovereign wealth funds are smaller than CalPERS. So CalPERS, uh, be, CalPERS being the California public employee retirement system, the big pension for public employees in California. Thank you. Uh, exactly. And the same is true for other uh, um, public pension funds from other large states, of course. These are very large players um, and among the largest institutional investors in the world. But then today there are larger players who are the asset managers of these funds that we're going to talk about more later. But in any case, all of these sub, let's say, well, types of retirement assets have grown. IRA, IRAs and 401ks have grown the most actually in recent decades. I have a chart in the paper that illustrates that quite nicely. And even though these are not part of these giant pension funds, necessarily these pools of money are still important because in, in, in practice, in asset manager capitalism, this money meets regardless of which pension pot and which government subsidized form of pension saving we're talking about. Eventually, this money lands with BlackRock or Blackstone. Great. That's, I think, a really helpful picture of where this stuff is. And so we often, you know, in pension speak for audience members, especially, unfortunately, audience members of the younger generation who may not have access to a pension, may be unfamiliar with some of this. There's defined benefit plans, which mean you're guaranteed a certain benefit at a certain point in your life. And then there's defined contribution plans, right? Which mean you make a certain contribution to it. That's that's specified. Historically, unions were associated with defined benefit plans, right? And union members, whether in the public sector or the private sector, had access to these defined benefit pension plans, which is a big part of what we're going to be talking about. In recent decades, as the labor movement has shrunk, more and more employee, you know, more and more working age adults find themselves in defined contribution plans. But that distinction is important to in some ways collapse, as you're saying, right? One step beyond the initial contribution phase, all this money is getting pulled together. Let's go from there and kind of revisit this, what the point you made briefly in, in your first response about the way in which these funds, pension funds, let's say, just to use the shorthand, pension funds have been a driving force behind financialization. So, you know, at, at first glance, this is like a difficult concept to get one's head around because these funds represent the savings of working people, right? And they're supposed to provide working people with an income into retirement. But as you, you kind of alluded to in, in talking about pay-as-you-go funds, most funds, or maybe, and maybe we haven't actually quite alluded to this, many of these funds, at least in the public sector, are underfunded, chronically underfunded as a result of, of decades of inequitable tax policy, of austerity, of political attacks from the right, also political attacks from, from Democrats, neoliberal Democrats. So we've got these underfunded funds, which adds another dimension to everything we're talking about. So we've got pension funds that are often underfunded. We've got defined contribution plans, 401ks or so on, that people are putting money in, and they all have to get some kind of return, as you say, to meet the needs of retirees down the line. So all of this has sort of forced pension funds into a deepening integration with the financial sector, let's say. And this is all dense and complex. I think you put it more eloquently a moment ago, but can we just walk through this one more time so that everyone is on the same page about it? Absolutely, yes. Uh, and, and the defined benefit, defined contribution distinction is of course crucial here. And I think there is something structural about this trend from defined benefit to defined contribution that can also in various ways be observed in other countries. 
So let's go through this step by step and maybe even historically, although in a very schematic way, I think it's a good way to start really in the post-war period when pension funds first public pension funds first became noticeable actor and force in the financial system in the US. So we can go through what I think are five stages of pension fund financialization that starts in the post-war period and ask what did pension funds invest in at a certain stage and what were the interests then of labor's capital as it's sometimes called. So at the beginning in this story, it's important that of course the financial system changes beyond recognition during those 70 years that we're now maybe covering from the 1950s until today. So in the 1950s, there wasn't much of a financial system to speak of, nothing comparable to what we have today. This was the period of the Bretton Woods system at the international level. There were capital controls, finance was heavily regulated everywhere, including in the United States. And pension funds often invested in, basically only invested in fixed income security. So bonds, and often even in just government bonds government bonds, treasuries, and, and local government bonds. And under these conditions, and Michael Glass and Sean Vanata have a very nice recent article on what they call fiscal mutualism, which I cite in my paper and which I've learned a lot from, where they describe how the system worked and then unraveled starting in the 1960s, whereby basically pension funds were some kind of almost local development funds. They bought public assets often related to local development projects. Um, and so local development and growth was in the interests of labor's capital under these conditions because labor's capital didn't have an alternative. They couldn't really go anywhere else, either because other markets for financial assets didn't even exist or they weren't allowed to invest in them. Then in the next step, pension funds started investing in private sector assets, first bonds. And this was not so different corporate bonds, because that doesn't really change very much for corporate governance and so on. But then in the third stage, you have the opening up of the stock market for investment by pension funds. And this was really a watershed. And this is described in all the books on and, and papers on pension financialization in the US, but also elsewhere. When pension funds start investing in the stock market in a big way, this is a big shift. And that's when pension fund managers or trustees acquired an interest in shareholder value, if you will, or rather became champions of shareholder value when shareholder value wasn't even a thing yet. And so this is, of course, the story of the rise of shareholder value is a story of reforms and corporate governance that were driven by pension fund campaigns often. So there is this question, did pension funds by campaigning, such as CalPERS and others, by campaigning for shareholder rights, did they campaign for their ultimate beneficiaries, which were workers and future retirees, or did they campaign for themselves as investors and other investors? And I would argue it's the latter. This path of financialization has since continued. And so that's the part that is maybe not so well known. The shareholder value story is quite well known. But since then, there's been another turn of the screw, if you will, or two, where pension funds have increasingly delegated investment, even in such plain vanilla almost uh, by now, assets such as corporate stocks, they have delegated this investment to external asset managers, such as BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. So it's not even the pension funds anymore that hold the voting rights in many cases, even though large public pension funds often retain their voting rights, they can do that because they are large enough and have the resources. But so there is a certain loss of control. This has to do at least, especially for private sector funds, 
has to do with the ERISA regulation, which placed additional fiduciary duties on pension fund trustees, which made it so that they basically, for legal liability reasons, preferred it to delegate investment to external for-profit asset managers. And then in, in the last 20 years, there's been another step in this direction, whereby pension funds increasingly moved into so-called alternative assets. So the most, let's say, predatory forms of investment. So hedge funds and private equity funds. I show this in the paper also in the final table, basically the allocation by public pension funds across all size groups, smaller ones, but also the largest ones has increased from near zero around 2000 to yeah, almost or, or 25% to alternative assets in general into hedge funds and private equity funds in particular. So the reason we've seen this development is, I think, that in a funded pension system, something like underfunding, which took a particular form in the U.S., and there were particular historically contingent struggles in the U.S. that are very specific to the place and the political context conditions, but uh, problems such as underfunding and therefore a systematic push, a, a drive to push the envelope on investment, as Ewald Engelen, a Dutch scholar of pension funds, has put it a while ago, this pushing the envelope on investment logic is really, I, I don't know of a pension system, I'm reading a lot of the comparative political economy literature, literature also from other countries, where this has not played out in a similar way. And I just studied data on Finnish pension funds to back up this point. And it turns out the asset allocation of Finnish pension funds looks almost exactly the development, the same as for US public pension funds. They are also at 25% today for alternative assets. Finland, all places. Right. So this there's this isn't a story of American exceptionalism, although there may be some degree be a uniquely American story in the post-war period. So just to kind of again, this chronology is I think extremely helpful for understanding how how financialization unfolded over time. We've got, you know, as you pointed out up front, one option in terms of if we could just wave a magic wand and imagine a retirement system is a pay as you go. And we kind of have a model for that. It's you know, not maybe as adequate as it as it could be, but where People, and perhaps through some scheme of progressive taxation, pay into a fund that distributes benefits immediately to current retirees. Pay as you go, right? You're not entering into the financial markets through such a system. If you're not going to do that, then you go the funded pension route, which is the route that all, to some degree, varying degrees, state, municipal, and Taft-Hartley or private sector pension funds in the United States did. You enter into a dynamic that almost compels you to push the envelope over time is I think the way you're laying it out. So in the mid century, mid 20th century, you talk about this complex of fiscal mutualism, pension funds using investing in local government bonds, which enable the construction of schools and, you know, the undertaking of various infrastructure projects. And that's, you know, that's, there's an interesting sort of progressive dimension to that. But as you know, that unravels as pressure for returns builds over time. And that pressure incrementally and in certain points through leaps, forces pension funds into deepening integration with the financial sector. So I think it's important just to know kind of a fork in the road question of like a pay-as-you-go systems versus funded systems and the contradictions associated with that. And, and where you get to by the end of that is a discussion of, of asset managers and, and alternative investments. So that's what I want to talk a little bit about here. You named BlackRock Blackstone, a lot of these have names. You know, I was going to make a joke about it. I can't even come up with one. There's just too many probably to make about the names they have. But right, these are 
colossal financial institutions that you've written a lot about and you characterize as constituting a system of corporate governance that maybe even represents a new kind of capitalism called asset manager capitalism. So can you yeah, talk a little bit more about what asset manager capitalism is and why these behemoths are so important to understand? So in my view, the rise of this asset manager capitalism is very closely linked to the growth of uh, pension assets in the U.S. specifically. I have these two charts in the paper that I try to illustrate this about Roughly put, 50% of mutual fund assets are pension fund assets. So that's very big. And then just recently, I found some data buried in some uh, SEC publications that about 25% of the assets of the hedge fund sector and the private equity sector in the U.S. are pension fund assets, public and private pension funds in the US. And then if you add endowments, you get to 40%. So these institutional capital pools are really the fuel that made these asset management companies so large. So the way to think about this is really a lengthening of the investment chain over the course of the post-war period. And you see this, for example, if you look at the structure of corporate equity ownership in the US, since 1945, which is when this time series starts, you can see how this evolved. In the beginning, all corporate equity was owned by households. There was no corporate equity in investment chain to speak of. And then you get the growth of institutional capital pools, which are basically initially insurers and pension funds. And in the mid 80s, pension funds held about 27% of all US corporate equity, which includes unlisted equity. It's the only data that's available on this. And this has since then declined again, not because pension funds declined in size. On the contrary, they have continued growing, of course, but because of this newly added link in the investment chain, which are even larger institutional capital pools, which are these for-profit asset managers that so... Uh, Pension funds pool the savings of individual retirees, if you will. And then the asset managers pool the investments of individual savers who maybe just buy an exchange-traded fund directly with BlackRock. But they also, in addition, pool the money from these institutional investors who invest in stocks via index funds offered by BlackRock or Vanguard. And so that's why they are larger by a factor of 10 or even 100 than even the largest public pension funds. We're talking about $10 trillion in the case of BlackRock and less, maybe $1 trillion. I don't have the latest number for Blackstone, which is, is the largest private equity company. And let's maybe briefly talk about the public equity part of that story, why this is an important development and why I think asset manager capitalism is really a new corporate governance regime, even if it's still a little maybe too early to make any historical judgments about its consequences. But if, if you think about the defining features of a corporate governance regime, I, I would say it's the concentration of ownership and the degree of control exercised by shareholders. And then also the diversification of the portfolios of the largest or of the most important type of shareholder. And in the post-war period, when it was all households, the concentration of the ownership structure or shareholder structure rather was very low. And the U.S. has always been seen as a dispersed shareholder society. This is the entire corporate governance literature in the U.S. and worldwide is based on this concept of the U.S. as a dispersed shareholder structure system where shareholders are weak and their only option to influence corporate governance is at exit and to sell their shares if they don't like what management of a company is doing. Then 
we had, so this was the corporate governance regime of managerialism, if you will. All the power was really with corporate managers. Shareholders had no power. Then you get these larger institutional investors. And starting in the 1980s, and then especially in the 1990s, uh, you have CalPERS and other public pension funds that hold, you know, the largest ones in some cases, 1% of the shares of any S&P 500 company. And that's not enough to really tell management what to do, but uh, they have some voice, they have some uh, influence on management, but they're also still small enough to exit individual investments. And so they are in the sweet spot. They can use both exit and voice, and they have a medium level diversification. They own maybe, you know, a hundred firms out of the S&P 500, but not all 500. So they make some bets and they engage with their portfolio companies and they do campaigns. And then that's also when you had this promise of, or threat, of course, I mean, Peter Drucker already brought in the 70s, came earlier, the promise of the threat in Peter Drucker's words of uh, pension fund socialism or for Barber and Rifkin. And uh, for them, this was this was a promise in 1978, right? The promise of pension fund socialism or pension fund capitalism. Pension funds could use their power in the system, exit and voice, to influence corporate management in a way that would benefit workers and that would really, yeah, completely change capitalism and maybe turn it into some kind of pension fund socialism. But this did not happen, arguably. And despite many successes for pension funds individually, my argument in this article is that the macro logic of search for yield prevails and in the rise of asset manager capitalism illustrates this because today it's not the pension funds calling the shots. It's 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 the largest asset managers. Today, BlackRock and Vanguard hold on average 9 or 10% in the average S&P 500 company. They cannot exit individual investments anymore. They are too large. And in any case, much of their money is invested by index funds that can't divest from individual companies. So they are all voice and no exit. But do they have an interest in using their potential control power and corporate governance in the interest of workers? That's very doubtful. Their business model is to maximize assets under management. They certainly do not want to alienate managers, corporate managers, who are also their customers via corporate pension schemes. So there are many conflicts of interest. And in any case, they are fully diversified shareholders. They hold 10% in all the S&P 500 companies. And if anything, there is an interest, for example, in, well, there's a literature that argues that since the same shareholders hold all are invested in all the airlines and in all the banks. There is a logic of common ownership whereby actually uh, these shareholders encourage uh, cartelization and monopolization. Uh, so you get monopoly-like structures because the shareholders are interested in maximizing profits at the sector level so that um, even consumers are worse off in, in this configuration where one could argue maybe that under shareholder capitalism, at least there was something in it for consumers. These are just some impressions on what asset manager capitalism is and how it is different from the pension fund dominated shareholder capitalism of the 1990s. Why maybe we're really past this peak of what was a hopeful moment for pension fund socialism. You, you've talked about this in a way already, but just to put terms to it that so our audience is, is aware of kind of the stakes of this debate, maybe we should just say a word about capital stewardship and the labor movement in particular. I mean, we, I, I should just, you know, I think it's important always to say up front, you know, the, the labor movement is the reason that 
pension funds exist. Unions have fought for, you know, the retirement security of members for decades and, you know, within a very constrained political environment. So that, and, and we've ended up with what we've got. And within that, within this kind of contradictory universe that you've described, unions have also for decades sought to be as strategic as they can about how to utilize the power that they might have and not without some success, right? You know, the Justice for Janitors campaign, which a lot of our listeners may be familiar with, is only the most famous example, I think, of some of these efforts. But again, you're pointing out some tensions within this and raising some doubts about the long-term efficacy of such a strategy that, you know, others have advocated for. So I should also mention maybe uh... David Weber's book, which I've learned a lot from on this um, Labor's Last List Weapon, where really a lot of the successes that you mentioned of pension fund campaigns to wield labor's capital in a way that benefits workers are described and lots of successes in individual cases. I think the trap in a way that we're in is not unique to the US. Again, it just plays out particularly starkly there, which is that in order for pension funds to, or in general, savers saving for retirement, regardless of the vehicle, including the savers in IRAs and 401ks, of course, to achieve returns that will allow them to have adequate income in retirement, there was a vested interest, so to speak, in financial liberalization. I mentioned the example of hedge funds, for example, when hedge fund investment was opened, pension funds followed and invested in this new asset class. This was in 1996 by an act of Congress, but it was not preordained. It happened. And this keeps happening. And so there are two alternatives. One is a pay-as-you-go system, which is an interesting trend globally in a rollback of some pension privatizations in a number of countries in Latin America and Eastern Europe, especially, because there are just so many contradictions in fully privatized pension system. So the shine has come off of this model a little bit since Chile first you know, became a star and lodestar for this movement. But are, probably this is not entirely realistic to just phase out private retirement provision and scale up social security via more progressive forms of taxation than now, of course. And then the other alternative is to, can we return to something like this fiscal, fiscal mutualism of the post-war period where pension institutional capital pools in general and pension funds in particular can be basically development funds, local development funds that invest locally in infrastructure projects in projects related to the green transition and so on and so forth. I think the road, it's always a little fanciful maybe to talk about a return to the 60s. And of course, in the US, this is even more problematic for uh, different reasons, but just purely in terms of financial regulations, it's quite clear what's needed. There were capital controls, which means that domestic investors cannot roam the world in search of, I have an example, European, any European real estate investment, private equity enterprise, you look who are the largest investors, they are US public pension funds. So there would have to be a limit for that, capital controls of some sort, and then just a much larger footprint of the state in the financial system, which the ugly buzzword and politically certainly a problematic, but it would be some form of financial repression, which is a term used by people generally opposed to this sort of politics. But yeah, a much larger footprint of for public banking, and there are currently very interesting policy proposals coming out uh, in the US, such as you know, a National Investment Authority, NIA, and these kinds of things that would generate projects that then pension funds could invest in. The returns might be lower, and then maybe there would have to be 
a larger public or pay-as-you-go component to recapitalize the, the pension system or to add a larger transfer component. This would be the other side of the coin because you couldn't have private equity returns maybe necessarily. I think that's, I think, a great way to tie this all together to big picture macro questions that we're grappling with. And while we're on this subject, I feel like I have my obligatory plug for the Postal Workers Union's proposal for postal banking as another dimension to thinking about how we might reform Exactly, this. that sort of thing. Okay, we've spent a lot of time understanding this big problem of facing the world. Now, how do we change it? We've got some policy ideas, but what, in terms of people who are in pension plans, the majority of people who aren't, what can we do? What kind of campaigns can we run? And how can we fight for a more just retirement system, financial system, workplace environment? Yes. Okay. The biggest question of all uh, for the end. I think the intervention that I tried to make in this article, which in a way you know, I thought you were asking some an outsider to write an article about this and a German on top of that. So, you know, I gave you uh, somewhat of a bleak outlook in, in this paper. Sorry, sorry about that. But uh, I do think there is also a hopeful message in there, which is that, well, the fight is even bigger in a way, maybe, even though, of course, everybody's aware of that. But I think it's not news to anyone, but I think the campaigns to run or the topics to focus on should go beyond corporate governance, for example, and should go beyond achieving better best practice for private equity investments and so on. But the goal should be to advance an agenda of radical financial reform. And I choose this work deliberately because we are far from this world where pension funds finance the green transition. And so a national investment authority would be great. And basically ending private equity uh, as it exists today would be great. Capital controls should be under conservation, nationalizing parts of the financial system. The problem, as I describe it, say at the very end of my paper, is that there the fact that there are these $35 trillion of pension money also, there is a sequencing problem because in a way for everything to get better for workers, for labor, and therefore for everyone, it needs to get worse for labor's capital first. And the really tricky question in a way is how to, the political, the politically tricky question is how to compensate labor's capital for the loss that is going that you'll have to impose on labor's capital to get to this radically changed financial system. That's a great, I mean, it's a contradiction that we have to confront, but I mean, in order to get anywhere, we always have to confront contradictions. I think that's a really important one to raise, to conclude. And Ben, I should say, I mean, you're hardly an outsider. As you note in your paper and in this discussion, this is a global problem and we're all in this together. So it's great to have you. I really, really thank you for making the time for writing such an excellent paper. Thank you, Samir, and thanks everyone. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.